Hi, everyone. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. It is late Monday night here in Israel, February 12th, 2024. Already moved into the fourth day of Adar, 5784, which is the birthday of one of my daughters. So it's always been a nice day for me. And Adar, for those of you who don't know, is supposed to be the joyous month, the month of unexpected, the month of masks coming off of Purim and, and, and changes. You feel it in the weather. It's kind of like this transitional month. So I woke up this morning and I spent the first hour crying. First, because I looked at the news and I saw the incredible um, saving of two of the hostages uh, from Gaza in I'm sorry, it makes James Bond look like Elmer Fudd, what, what the army did here. Like, then yes, Sam and the military, all these guys, just insane. And then I very soon after found out that we lost two soldiers yesterday. I also hit home a little bit because both of them are sons of doctors, uh, actually very well-known doctors uh, here in Israel, the heads of, of different uh, of different divisions of, the, of specialists, let's just put it that way. So um we're also medical families, so it just made it like a little closer. So my husband calls me at some point this morning, and I'm sobbing. I sobbed for a good part of the morning. And he said, you know, what's so crazy is that you don't know these people, and you're crying for them, both of joy and of grief. And I said, of course I know these people. Like, they're my family. And these guys who died, they died for me, and they don't know me. So why wouldn't I be full of grief when something happens to them? That's just the way it is here. As you all know, on the mornings like that, when I feel like I'm going to cry all day, I do nothing better but send a text message to David Wormser and say, please help me out here so that I don't cry through my podcast. So once again, David Wormser has risen to the occasion. How many people have friends like this? I'm telling you. Thank you so much for joining me here, David. Oh, no worries. It's always a pleasure. (laughs) So the other gripe that I have, in addition to everything else, is this thing with Egypt. You know, and we're on the, we're on different lists together, and I've been reading things, and it's like every morning, you know, Egypt is like they're moving rockets to the border with with Gaza. They're moving troops. They're they've you know, it's like the Maginot Line there. I don't know what's going on there. And I thought to myself because I I spent a lot of time in Sinai when I should have been in class at Hebrew U between seventy nine and eighty. But I, I have to admit, I was in Sinai a lot. I won't. I haven't gone back since nineteen eighty two since Israel left for ideological reasons, but. Um, but uh, isn't that, my understanding is with that, you know, Camp David and, and the treaty with Egypt is that Sinai was supposed to be demilitarized, a fact that many really nasty people have taken advantage of in the last few decades, which is why Israel's kind of turned a blind eye to Egypt going in there and dealing with ISIS and all the other jihadis who found it like this beautiful peninsula of refuge. But this is kind of like this blatant, flagrant What's going on here in your very, if, oh, please introduce yourself for people who didn't hear my other podcast with you and don't know how esteemed you are and why I look at you as one of the experts on all things having to do with the Middle East. Sorry about that, everybody. Thanks, Eve. Well, um, you know, I don't know why I'm that esteemed. I, I held some significant office. I was senior advisor for Vice President Cheney and then uh, also for uh, John Bolton, both when he was ambassador well, when, before he was an ambassador, when he was undersecretary of state in 2001-2002. And then again, when he was a uh, national security advisor under President Trump. Uh, but I think I think most people uh, know me more because they cause trouble. So it's, it's anyways. <laughs> That's why I like you so much. Yes. <laughs> um, unapologetic Zionist. And in Washington, that, caused, that causes trouble. So... Uh, 
Oh yeah. Uh, so be it. Uh, so be it. Uh, uh, anyway, yeah, Egypt bothers me too. I mean, it it bothers me on a number of different levels. First of all, it bothers me for what they're doing. When Israel was threatened, uh, I mean, when Egypt was threatened, as you said, by ISIS, they moved forces in. They had to crush ISIS, and Israel turned a blind eye. More, it actually outright told the Egyptians, please go ahead, do it. We have no problem with you doing it. And they, they raised the limits on what they could bring in. But now you have a situation where Israel faces a much graver threat than anything ISIS in Sinai ever posed to Egypt itself. And uh, Egypt doesn't give Israel the time of day over its own interests. I mean, the 1,500 or so killed by Hamas. And the fact that Hamas threatens Egypt just as much as ISIS does, the Egyptians still don't want to give Israel that ability to um, to essentially do what it has to do in the territory of Gaza to get it done. So that's a disturbing, is the complete self-interestedness that is then not reciprocated. Self-interest I could deal with, but the absolute denial of the Jewish side's right to defend itself. The second thing is, why is Egypt so nervous? Well, I, I think that part of it is that Egypt is well aware that there was a significant amount of corruption. Egypt, really most Arab states, I hate to say it, are kleptocracies. Mm -hmm. Egypt, the Palestinian Authority, Hamas, then, they were all kleptocracies. And it's a huge element of economic stability for the officer corps and for elites to be in on this, this corruption. And if Israel takes the border area, the corruption ends. So I think that's part of the anger that Egypt expressed. What, why would the corruption end if Israel takes over the border? Which, by the way, it's very clear with all the rockets and everything that Israel's found in Gaza, if it wasn't coming in from Israel, it was coming in from the Sinai Desert. So Egypt either dropped the ball completely, turned a blind eye, or was complicit in arming the Hamas. Well, I think as state policy, it, it had a policy of stopping the flow, but in terms of reality, I think the corruption turned into a, a free flow of equipment. And I think that's one of the things, both as the national thing, Egypt will be humiliated by being exposed to having tolerated this cross-border trade of Hamas's. You're saying their security forces were paid off in order to allow this stuff to go Certain in. Certain they were that's paid off. I'm sure high okay. officers were paid off mm -hmm. and government officials were paid off. Mm -hmm. And so Egypt is in a very embarrassing situation where it has to, it, it will be exposed that it was lying. It knew that the border was porous. A lot of its own people were complicit in it, uh, complicit in it. So I think Egypt faces uh, a very difficult circumstance from that point of view. And then third, uh, realistically speaking, Egypt knows what Palestinians are about, which is why Egypt doesn't want Palestinians. Kind of can't blame them. Yeah, it builds a, a more day, you know, a more impenetrable fence and puts heavy equipment to stop them. Now, all that said, what really worries me also is the type of equipment they're putting there. They're not just putting a lot of troops with guns; they're putting tanks, heavy equipment, stuff you really don't use for crowd control. Now they're putting the SA seventy five anti 
aircraft missile. Well, what on earth would Egypt need anti-aircraft missiles for on the Gaza border? Well, Hamas doesn't have aircraft. So the only people flying over Gaza is the Israeli Air Force. And the few things they threw, flew into Israel, those, those uh, paragliders, mm-hmm. believe me, these SA-75 missiles don't have anything to do with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it begins to become more of a threat. That they're whether they meaningfully want to threaten Israel with war, or they're simply rattling their sabers against Israel. Either way, that is not done in a state of peace, right. and especially when Israel has been quite uh, deferential to Egyptian interests all along. Mm-hmm. Uh, it probably didn't go into the Philadelphia corridor at the beginning of the war precisely because of that. That's the, just to explain, that's the strip that separates Egypt from Gaza. It's called the Philadelphia Corridor, which is just trying to figure out what to do with. The second level of being disturbed by this is why would Egypt be doing such a destabilizing set of actions? And I think this gets to the core of the American conundrum, which is the United States under the Obama presidency and then now under the Biden presidency has been hostile to friends in the region, and the friends are turning away from the United States. Uh, In Egypt's case, the hostility was twofold. On one side, they kept harping about the expulsion of, or the overthrow of uh, Morsi's uh, Hamas, uh, sorry, Muslim Brotherhood slash Hamas government of Egypt. Uh, And by the way, one can only imagine what the circumstance would be now if Morsi had stayed in power oh these God. last 12 yeah. years, he would have been complicitous with, and it, that would have been the end of peace. Egypt would be at war with Israel right. for real. Mm-hmm. So that, that first of all, all these people who are harping about why, why, why should Morsi not have stayed in power? Here's your answer. Uh, the second thing is um, they have been nothing but hostile to Egypt. The Washington has been nothing but hostile but hostile to Egypt, and it struggled to stay, survive as a government against the Muslim Brotherhood. And it's basically uh, encoded language without knowing it was employing it, sided with Erdogan and Turkey against Egypt, Erdogan being the big ally of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. So the Egyptians felt quite abandoned by the United States there. On the other end of Egypt, you have Libya. Libya divided into pieces after Gaddafi's collapse. And the eastern part of, of Libya is a buffer zone for Egypt. They're terrified of the Muslim Brotherhood, Al-Qaeda, ISIS in Libya, which is a significant factor, and other Muslim Brotherhood forces. So they're, they're working with General Haftar, who who's was the chief of staff of the Libyan military, and the House of Representatives, which is actually the elected government of Libya, but is uh, retreated into Benghazi out in the east. East. So Egypt very much wants a buffer government let, a small government on its border, but the United States has been pushing the idea of this unity government in Tripoli, which is including ISIS and the Islamic uh, parties. So Egypt is terrified of that. So Egypt feels entirely abandoned by the United States. Then on top of it all, you have the Red Sea right. and the Houthis. The piracy. And all of a sudden, the United States, I mean, everybody suffers from this. Egypt, 
suffers, uh, Israel suffers. Well, the Suez Canal traffic is down, what, like 80%, which is the major source of income for Egypt. Exactly. So the source of income from corruption with Gaza will end. The source of income from the Suez Canal ends. Egypt finds itself in serious economic trouble, and the United States is dallying around in the bubble Mandeb Straits. It has the power to shut down the Houthis literally in minutes. Mm-hmm. in a conclusive way, but it is afraid of Iran to do so. So Egypt gets the message. America is a, a perfidious Albion. It is not a dependable ally anymore. Uh, it stabs you in the back as a friend. Uh, Russia's out there and has generally sided uh, with its own allies uh, without question. Iran is definitely out there and, and shows that it's determined. So Egypt is beginning to show signs of shifting its strategic orientation. The very way that when they saw the United States as the future rising power in the 70s, in the Soviet Union showing the first signs of right. decline and Israel's strength, uh, it began to turn toward peace. It is now the exact same process in reverse. And then that's the third thing that's worrisome. 1973, Israel showed its strength. It was unquestionably a victory, even though Egypt portrayed it as a victory for Egypt. It was an Israeli victory, a decisive victory. The Yom Kippur War. The Israelis made the Egyptians understand there was no military option anymore to destroy Israel. So on the basis of a victory like that, Egypt saw its interest in the long term aligning with Israel rather than against Israel. What's worrisome is the sort of flailing behavior of Israel vis-a-vis the Palestinians now for 30 years. This is the long-term consequence of Israel's engagement with the Palestinians and indulging of Western obsession with Palestinians. It shows Israeli weakness. It shows the crumbling of Israeli conviction. It shows Israeli inattentiveness to its basic red lines and in irreducible requirements for survival. Then you had Israel behaving in a larger uh, uh, disoriented way, the maritime agreement with, oh with, uh, Lebanon. God, with, uh, with Lebanon, the inability to really check Hezbollah, the inability to really stand down Hamas all these years and convince itself that it had won when it had not. Egypt got the picture, and Israel no longer looked entirely like the strong horse with which you want to be aligned. It looked more and more like it itself had lost its way. And then under the previous Israeli government, it seemed to be more or less reducing itself again to a uh, proxy of the United States. The United mm-hmm. States had lost its way, and Israel was drifting. So you take all those trends together, it puts Egypt in a trajectory that is really concerning, and it has to stop. And it has to stop by Israeli strength, putting America on notice that its behavior toward its allies is now causing irreparable damage, not only to itself, but to the strategic architecture of the region. And then globally, that there is a global conflict in the West is not necessarily seen as strong or the or or the inevitable victor in what is emerging as a global struggle 
You know, I was in Egypt last year. I'm so glad that I went because I wouldn't go now. And it, what struck me really, in addition to obviously the fabulous archaeology, is how poor the country is. I mean, really, beggars coming up to us at every place, people living in the cemeteries. Um, I think they add a million people a year. They're up to, I don't know, close to 100 million people. They have three months of food stores at best. This is not a country that has any wiggle room whatsoever. And and what's frightening about what you just said, though, is is this all about the American elections? I mean, do people really not see that the weakness and the indecisiveness of the American government is causing massive instability here in the Middle East and will lead to the deaths of possibly hundreds of thousands of people? I mean, it's just, this, is, uh, this is not hyperbole. It is partly about the American elections because, I mean, they've convinced themselves, the Biden administration has convinced themselves they need, they need a specific voter base in Michigan, the Arab American voter base. And then they can't win the election without it. But first of all, I question that. I think I think what you're seeing is the takeover of the Democratic Party by the progressives. And the progressives, I think, are are uh, holding Michigan hostage. I don't think actually a rational or dispassionate analysis of American politics will will show you that that it is in the interests of any political party to pander to that narrow. Uh, demographic group. Uh, for every vote they may gain in Vichy- Michigan, they're going to lose a lot of votes elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Number one and number two, they're going to lose swing districts in Congress because a lot of these districts don't like America looking weak, and they don't particularly like the Palestinians. No, Americans are still pretty pro-Israeli. Yeah. So yeah. The, the, you're not going to win an election by being pro-Palestinian. You only can do that. I mean, basically, I think what this shows is how much power the progressives have over the imagination of the Democratic. D- disproportionate to their numbers. Disproportionate is and distorted. Right, that we have that with the Israeli left as well. I mean, I see it on the news. I see it with the, some of the demonstrations going on that they have really, t- like, for example, they've taken over a lot of the hostage issue. You know, we, I mean, thank God two of the hostages are out today. But you talk to some of the parents and they are very upset that the whole hostage issue has turned into an anti-Bibi thing, which is not where they want it to go. Forget how they feel about the prime minister. It was a national unity issue. But the second thing about America is that uh, I think that we also have to realize the elections are being used by, by progressive staffers inside the White House rather than the other way around. I think they're... They're throwing out elections, elections, elections to really get the policy they want anyway. And the policy they want anyway, if you look at Samantha Power, who is a rabid hater of Israel. Yeah, wow. uh, You need to look at her articles that she wrote 10, 20 years ago, calling for NATO to be deployed into the West Bank, got Judea and Samaria and Gaza in order to protect Palestinians against Israel, literally to mobilize NATO against mm-hmm. Israel. Not, not as a buffer for Israel if it was through, but as a buffer for Palestinians from Israelis, knowing full well that the Palestinians will commit terrorism, right. and then Israel would have to respond. So imagine if NATO were in Gaza now, and Israel had to go in. So that's what Samantha Powers wanted. Uh, that's 
then you go to others, Meyer Bittar, who was part of the BDS movement, and he was an UNRWA, United Nations Relief Works Agency. And we know all about UNRWA now. They had no idea that the headquarters of the Hamas was right under their headquarters. They, they've been out, they've been, they had left, they left in December. Like that whole complex was built since December. So, so Meyer Bittar is a good, good, good little study on this because he had been for a few years uh, working in UNRWA. Uh, and and he then became a the intelligence committee in in the, in the House, and then from there he went on now to the White House, and he's become senior director for intelligence at the National Security Council oh of the White God. House. Now, the senior director for intelligence is the one who coordinates all intelligence policy, which is signaling down to the intelligence communities what they need to be looking for, what sort of analyses should be driven. And then in turn, what comes up from the system is filtered through him and is presented to the White House staff, including the president, vice president, through him. So uh, he controls the way reality looks. Now, this is basically one of the top two or three intelligence officials in the United States. So here you have a guy who was part of UNRWA who claims he didn't know. Now, either he is a liar. And he mm -hmm. knew, and he's sympathetic with what was being done. But all of us knew a decade ago, or, or so, a decade ago when he was there. I mean, we knew UNRWA was complicit. We knew there were missiles under school. Right. We knew that there were um, arsenals. We got their textbooks. We knew what they were teaching their kids, which was to destroy Israel. Yes. We knew about Shifa Hospital. It was in the Israeli TV show Fauda already almost half right. This is when Bittar was a, was a staffer there. So either he didn't see, in which case you really have to question his credentials. As an intelligence officer, right. If he couldn't see what was literally slapping him in the face, or he's, he's, he's dissembling, in which case he's not an honorable person, and you wonder about his loyalty. So either way, it's a big question mark. And then you have Hedy Amar, who's BDS, and then you have... You know, you just go down, you have this lady who's deputy, uh, who, who's deputy of analysis in the CIA, who has a Palestinian flag on her wall. I mean, the, the, you're seeing the progressive takeover of the staff of the, of the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. And they're using the elections as the cover to bend the administration in a certain way. But they've been doing it all along. Well, and then you have this legislation, like suddenly there's this moral equivalence between Hamas and the settlers, which I find particularly appalling because I know what's going on out here. So suddenly there's these like four people who you would think they were just arch terrorists. And but but it's frightening because not only are their their bank accounts have been frozen and suddenly there's things coming up here legally that have never have never been discussed before, like. People who live in Judea and Samaria have the potential of being treated as war criminals or if we go into another country. I mean, this is like a really slippery slope, and it seems to be gaining speed all the time. It, it actually makes illegal opposition to the Oslo process. <laughs> Which most Israelis are opposed to right now. If you read the executive order mm -hmm. uh, advocating against the Oslo process, can be interpreted as inimical to peace. I mean, look, uh, Bill Clinton, who was not a progressive, but Bill Clinton, remember, he called all those who opposed Oslo enemies of peace. Right. Well, that's the language that triggers the executive order. Mm -hmm. So it is a very dangerous deterioration. 
Uh, and the United States definitely is, I'm very worried about the direction of the Democratic Party here at this point. And really now is the point at which Jewish supporters of the Democratic Party have to step up and make sure their party goes back in a different direction or else it isn't the bipartisan issue anymore. Now it looks like they're calling on his, and it looks like they're like insisting that Israel stop the war against Hamas, which the vast majority of Israelis, doesn't matter left, right, and center, if we stop now, it's a Hamas victory. We're not done. We still have, depending on how many are dead already, you know, let's say well over 100 or around that, and we don't even know what to think anymore, hostages that nobody seems to care about, definitely the Red Cross. I mean, another thing, like a month ago, we sent medication in. The Red Cross, big fail. They haven't delivered it. They don't care. They're also totally, they've been anti-Israel since before there was an Israel, you know, when there was a Holocaust, they didn't help the Jews either. But it's like, what is, it's sitting here in Israel, it's like, what the, what is going on here? Are so many people blinded to what is right and what is wrong? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I, th- these international organizations, we're going to find that UNRWA is not alone. The Red Cross probably isn't just uh, morally bankrupt. It was probably complicitous. Yeah. And you know what? It wouldn't be the first time. I'll tell you something that, that um, is not yet really out there in the public very much, but it's way beyond the statute of limitations, which is in World War II, Count Bernadotte, who was the head of the Red Cross, in World War II and has been credited as a great friend of Jews because he he freed some Jews at the end of the war mm-hmm. uh, uh, and then was was killed because he put forth the Bernadotte plan, which right. was really determination of, uh, of of the Zionist effort. I mean, it was the end of Zionism. It was the mm-hmm. end of the attempt to establish Israel and the British put him forward and used him because he had credentials with somebody who had saved Jews. Um, and, and, and therefore, they, they thought he was unassailable. Uh, now, first of all, the Red Cross was complicitous with the Nazis a lot, whether it was Theresia and uh, you know, other right. things. But as it turns out, uh, the, the uh, uh, Count Bernadotte, and there are files, was actually working for uh, the SS. He was an SS agent. Really? And the idea, yes, there, there are files out there. The Swedes have one. British have the file too, which is why they put they had blackmail authority over him. And it, this is not yet fully out in public, but this is now what, 70, 80 years ago. So a good historian should now go and interview some people and figure this out. But I've seen the papers. The, it's oh, there. The proof. It's, wow. it's not speculation on my part. Uh, there is a file out there. It was the SS file on Bernadotte. And the idea of saving Jews was actually uh, SS leaders at the end of the war trying to save themselves mm. uh, by the British. That they, oh, we weren't we weren't on board with the Holocaust. We were just we were in a pos- impossible position. And we're you, following you were orders. Yes. And now we're trying to free them. So, but Her- Bernadotte happily after the war took credit for it when it was really an SS idea, and the Swedish government. Uh, remember, the king of Sweden had been quite complicitous with the Nazis, and it was great in national embarrassment in Sweden. And as a result, having such a senior member of the royal family, having been uh, whitewashed, essentially Jew-washed, mm-hmm. was highly useful. So the whole thing became covered up. The British w- found it very useful because they could use a semi-Jewish hero to think Jude- Jewish national aspirations right. in Swedish 
anyway, it's all there. I mean, it will fascinating year two. It'd be one of the things. But you see, this points to a larger problem, which is these international organizations, whether it's Kurt Waldheim at the UN or so forth, they became complicitous with some of the most anti-Semitic movements the world has ever seen. Either whitewashing people, providing cover when they're still in power, or hiding them after the war, like Kurt Waldheim. And and it's it's really uh, I think Gaza really shows the depth of the danger of this. This is not just a question of unpleasantness or injustice. It's an ongoing danger. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's another issue that needs to be raised as well. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the other thing, too, is the, the, the weakness of Israel. If Israel is not able to conquer all of Gaza, as you mentioned, uh, let's be real what that means. It means, that, as you said, Hamas has won the war, but Israel looks weak. Right. It basically just had another round with Hamas on a much larger and more intense level, but not different. Difference of quantity, but not quality. If it le- leaves Hamas in power, even over a square centimeter. So at that point, um, Israel looks weak in the region. And no peace treaty will survive. Not only will yeah. you not get peace in the Gaza envelope, but you will not have peace with Egypt. You will not have peace with Jordan. You will never have peace with Saudi Arabia. And you will lose your peace with other Arab countries that mm-hmm. currently have peace with Israel. It is devastating if Israel looks like a lame donkey rather than a strong force. Right. And leaving Hamas in power implies that. And everybody in the region knows it. So it's imperative that Israel continue. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you just mentioned Jordan, which has kind of been on like the back burner, but it's our longest border on the east side of Israel. And, you know, what do you think? And every once in a while, like we'll hear that some Jordanians try to infiltrate or Iraqis through Jordan. And but where do you think that's going with Jordan? I think Jordan is in a very dangerous place. It's a dangerous place, partly because of critical mistakes that the king has done. Partly because he has an idea uh, that he 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 that is wrong, and and third because he's facing impossible pressures. Let me sort of go back for a second. The mistakes he'd done. He thought like a Westerner. He was educated in the West. He thought like a Westerner, and he thought that his marriage to a Palestinian. I mean, he loved her. I'm not saying that that's not a marriage of love or anything, mm-hmm. but he thought that the marriage would produce an heir that symbolizes the two halves of Jordanian identity, the Palestinian half and the uh, Bedouin half, and and that, that it would unify and overcome the conundrum of the schizophrenic identity. of That's a very Western way of looking at it. The mm-hmm. way that people in the Middle East look at it is, you betrayed my tribe by marrying the other. And as a result, the government now has the loyalty of nobody. And you can see it. He doesn't have the loyalty of the tribes anymore. And he hasn't gained the loyalty of the Palestinians. He doesn't have the ability to have the loyalty of the tribes. He doesn't speak Arabic very well. He doesn't go down there. He doesn't like to go to the tribal leaders. So he's begun that because of that big mistake, he started the next big mistake, which was riding the tiger of Palestinianism. He thought, well, the Palestinians threaten more than do the, the Bedouins. 
uh, uh, tribal leaders, where are they going to go? So I'm going to ride Palestinianism. And that's a tiger you can't get off of, to use the old proverb. It's getting worse. You could see it happening already. It has nothing to do with nothing now. It has nothing to do with Israel. You can see this already in 2015, 16, 17. You remember in 2017, the whole crisis on the Temple Mount? Yes. With the with the with the magnetic uh, like the the cameras to to check people before they came in that they had weapons, right? Jordan was actually playing an inciting role here, not a stabilizing role. They were actually throwing fuel onto the fire, and ever since Egypt, I mean uh, Jordan has been essentially throwing fuel onto the fire, hoping that it can get ahead of the Palestinian issue, only winding up becoming a bigger and bigger factor in it. So I think what you see is, uh, you know, that policy failed. And now you've got Iraqi militias trying to move in. You've got pressures from the war. Hamas is very, has great currency in Jordan. It has great currency among Arabs and Judea and Samaria. It, it is a tremendous threat to, uh, to Jordan. Jordan is also facing pressures from Iran, from Syria, from the Syrian civil war. So you have a huge mis- uh, misconception by the by the king and what defines Jordan, followed by a fundamental policy catastrophe in, in embracing Palestinianism, now being consumed by the pressures that he doesn't have the foundation to resist. Mm-hmm. And that leads me to believe that, this, that he may well not be long for this world. I just, you know, sometimes I think that we're heading for like a Prince Ferdinand moment, you know, the Archduke, right? Which, which supposedly anyway, as the lore goes, kicks off World War One, right? And Sarah getting, you know, assassinated in Sarajevo, that someone in this region, that somebody's going to do something. And because you don't have democracies outside of Israel, so the, the, the most guys with the guns, they're the ones who take over, whether it's the Muslim Brotherhood trying to get rid of el-Sisi in Egypt or who knows who in Jordan, take your pick, or Syria or any of these countries or Iran, and that could change everything in five minutes. And, and there's no short of, of, of arsonists in the region. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, how many uh, principes, you know, who was the guy who assassinated Ferdinand, how many principes there were in 1914? I don't know. Right. But there are an awful lot of principes now all over the Middle East. And then there's yeah. even principe movements, arsonist movements, all the tentacles of Iran, and then and then wildcat movements like Al Qaeda, ISIS, blah blah blah. Or Qatar, who what did someone say? They're 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 the they're the arsonist and the firemen at the same time. Or at least they're trying to be. It keeps them in business. It keeps them in business. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and, and, and the Palestinian authorities is sort of another type of Qatar where they're both the arsonists and the solutions. Right. right. So it's a much more unstable circumstance, uh, indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you have suddenly, I don't know, as a reward for October 7th, there's a push again for a Palestinian state. It's like, is, has everybody lost, I'm sorry for repeating this, has everybody lost their minds? Like, you actually think that the same ideology that did October 7th should now have some kind of sovereignty smack in the heart of Israel, and that's a good idea that's going to lead to peace? The, you know, the implication of Israel I'm not flummoxed. taking all of Gaza is, is that Israel loses the war. And, and that's clear. You really can't escape that. And I mm-hmm. doubt people are that stupid. So people that are pushing for that are trying to get Israel to lose the war to continue your thought? Palestinian state 
if a Palestinian state had existed, the IDF would not be present all over the Judea and Samaria, and Abu Mazen would have fallen, and it would be Hamas's then. And that's laying aside the problem that Abu Mazen's forces themselves are training to do an October 7th. Yes, we know. They're, they're, you know, they themselves are a problem. But let's say that you want to be deluded and you think that he's some sort of a, a, a Thomas Jefferson uh, Democrat. He didn't have any authority. He would fall in two seconds to Hamas right. if the IDF isn't there to prop him up. So October 7th would have been launched from Bulkaram and Kalkilia onto the suburbs of Tel Aviv, at the same time it would have been launched from Gaza, had there been a, a Palestinian state. One thing is very clear from October 7th, a Palestinian state itself represents an existential threat to Israel. Very hard to deny that. The second thing that's horrible about that is how morally offensive it is. Not only do you reward them for terrorists, but actually something worse. Right now, it is very important the world understand what uh, what October 7th was. It was a day of evil. Sadly, it was Simchat Torah, but luckily we celebrate on the lunar calendar, adjusted lunar calendar, right. so Simchat Torah will fall on different days going forward and right. we can maybe separate October 7th. But the bottom line was, it is now a day, October 7th is a day of absolute horror, like worse than September 11th, because the depravity of human behavior reached such a twisted and devious nature that it is probably one of the most um, symbolic moments of evil the world has seen. And to take that moment and couple it to a Palestinian state means that you have taken the moment of greatest human evil and transformed it into something like a steel day or July 4th, or, or whatever national holiday marks celebratory uh, identity of free countries. And you've created the Palestinian National Day surrounding their evil, which means you have glorified, you have involved yourself in raising the evil that they have done to the level of something that needs to be celebrated. You have raised yourself to the level of Hamas, the very Hamas terrorists who did it and celebrated as they were killing Jews. That is what the West is doing to itself by linking a Palestinian statehood directly to the consequences of this war. Even if you want to be deluded and believe in a state, you have to decouple it from this specific event. You have to put it aside and give a cooling off period afterwards, whether it's six months or six years or six decades, I don't know. But even if you believe in a Palestinian state, it is morally imperative to decouple it from October 7th. And yet, it is clear that the West has fallen prey to that. And it is now, whether it's Cameron, and I'm sorry, Cameron is morally bankrupt. Lincoln is morally bankrupt if they go ahead and declare a Palestinian state. even suggesting it now is evil that was said with a lot of clarity uh really and that's something that people aren't saying but that's really the bottom line yeah that uh well okay we have a work cut out for us 
All right, David Worms, or anything else you want to add? Give us a lot of a lot of things to think about. If Israel wins big, things will be fine. Saudis mm-hmm. will make peace. Egypt will stay at peace. Jordan will stay at peace. Maybe internally, I don't know what it managed to do, but it it, it will it it's got its best shot if Israel's strong. Yeah. Uh, other countries may join, and America will eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, learn from Israel. It can influence America in the long run, too, for Israel to regain its own confidence. Mm-hmm. And Israel is now a major front in a global struggle. So yeah. it helps the West as a whole, and Israel emerges as a stabilizing factor in the region, which then makes a lot of Americans very proud to be an Israeli ally, rather mm-hmm. than an albatross Israel is really a, a fourth multiplier. So everything boils down now to a, a, a decisive victory by Israel strategically, which, uh, unfortunately, we all have loved ones in the IDF and worried, but yes. it, might, it will probably involve the North as well. Uh, it seems like it's going to have to because Israel is smaller than it was on October 7th because there's nobody living in the southwestern side and there's nobody living in the north. So we have uh, we have truncated ourselves and nobody's going back to the north from the people that I'm speaking to while Hezbollah is just a kilometer away with anti-tank missiles that shoot seven kilometers into your living room. It's not happening. It's just not happening. And, I don't and ultimately it goes, to, it goes to, to Iran. And strategically, regionally, right. Iran has to be put on the defensive, not Victor. Right. No, and a lot of the soldiers that have been demobilized now, including one of my sons from the north, but they've got their papers for when they're coming back. And it's clear that that job wasn't finished yet. Um, it's a very interesting time to be here, uh, like theologically speaking, which I know a lot of my listeners are at. Um, you know, we, I mean, to me, it's clear, and it didn't even have to be said, that the unbelievable her- heroism of the soldiers that rescued the hostages, um, yes, last night was accompanied by something much bigger than they are. Like, they had to go in there, and it has to be done by human beings, but there's also... For me, anyway, there's always there's always an unseen um, escort, and that is how a lot of Israelis see it. Like it, it's it's in tandem, and we can just hope that um, that the forces of good continue to outweigh the forces of evil. Because as you said, the forces of evil are not they're not just against Israel. I mean, this is really a decisive moment, I think, for the world. And uh, and Israel has a huge. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why this little people ends up always at the forefront of that. But apparently that's our destiny. It's our fate. Yeah, that is apparently our destiny, that we need to show the world the way and and, and the goodness and the light. We're going to keep doing it from here. Um, I personally have no choice. I know that you feel the same. And I know that a lot of our listeners uh, also understand the difference and, and are doing what they can. And if it's affecting the American elections, then that's a huge thing to be able to do right now. Huge. Uh, and make sure that America falls on the right side of things. Uh, I know Israel will. I'm not so sure about the rest of the world. Dr. David Wormser, thank you so much once again for keeping me crying through the podcast. Okay, everybody, round of applause. <laughs> I can't do that every week. Thank you, Eve. Always great to talk to you, really. Hope to see you here soon. All right, everyone. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network, with thanks to Tabitha and to Ben and to all of you. And I hope that wherever you are, you're safe, you're proud. You know what's really happening. Okay, God bless. Take care, everyone. Goodbye for now.